Good morning, everyone. Good to be with you all this morning. It is good to come and to speak with you from God's Word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and, and praise you because you're worthy of worship. We thank you for your Word because it reveals the truth. It reveals to us what is right and wrong, what is good and evil, what is just and unjust. Lord, we ask and pray that you would be at work now in these moments through the power of your Holy Spirit. God, that you would encourage us uh, to live faithfully according to your word. Lord God, we want to see uh, your word lived out in our lives, in our church, and in our nation. We ask for that today, God. We pray, Jesus, your blessing on this time because we know no good will come apart from your work. And so we ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, last week was uh, Sanctity of Life Sunday. And despite the fact that Roe has been overturned, abortion remains one of the most vital moral issues of our day. And so we're going to take uh, this week and we're going to look at what God's word has to say about it this morning. I think it's easy to ignore, uh, to forget the Holocaust that's happening in our nation right now. It's very easy to ig ignore it. Thousands of innocent preborn children are being killed daily. And the statistics on abortion are, they're difficult for a few different reasons. First, they're difficult because uh, many abortions go unreported, and most of those are self-managed abortions through the abortion pill. And so the numbers that we have are really lower, the, the real numbers are really higher than what we see, so they're difficult for that reason. But they're also difficult because Statistics are impersonal. Every September 11th, we commemorate the tragic death of nearly 3,000 people. We, we commemorate that every year, and rightly so. The loss of that much human life in one day is horrific. That happens every day through abortion. Every day, every day, thousands of boys and girls are unjustly killed through abortion procedures and abortion pills. This is staggering. The statistics are shocking to us. That's another reason why they're so hard. They're hard to wrap our minds around them. But even still, those numbers, they're impersonal. They're just numbers. We need to remember that everyone is a little boy or a little girl whose life has been snuffed out unjustly. Now, what does God's word say about this? That's always the primary question for us as Christians. What has God said? Not what do I think about abortion, not how do I feel about abortion. What does God say? Why does it matter? How are we supposed to respond? Those are the questions we want to try to answer today as we look uh, at the scriptures. The message for us this morning comes from uh, Psalm 82, verses 3 and 4, right out of those verses. Maintain the right of the afflicted. Rescue them from the hand of the wicked. We're going to see that this psalm calls us to give justice to the preborn without partiality. God wants justice without partiality, and that applies to the unborn. We're going to see three principles that call us to maintain the rights of the preborn children. But first, I want to do a brief overview of Psalm 82. The, the tone of this psalm is serious. 
And so the tone of this sermon will also be serious. It's a serious subject. But in this psalm, God addresses human rulers who are judging unjustly and showing partiality to the wicked. God demands that they give justice to the weak and the fatherless, that they maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute, rescue the weak and needy, deliver them from the hand of the wicked. This is what God expects of earthly rulers. As the congregation sings this psalm, it serves as a call to their governing authorities to use their power to protect the weakest members of society, the people who are the easiest to exploit, to give justice and rescue them from the hand of the wicked because their rulers would have been in the congregation with them. So that's what this is. That's what this is is happening here. And we're going to apply it this morning to abortion because the unborn child is the most vulnerable of anyone in our society. No one is facing greater affliction than they are. But we could equally apply this psalm to other situations like human trafficking, which is another horrendous evil that's taking place in our society. Women and men of all ages being sold and afflicted at the hand of wicked men. And that deserves its own sermon. We could address the pornography industry and the exploitation of people and the trafficking of images online. Several different issues that we could apply this text to. Both the born and the trafficked, they need justice and they need rescue. This leads us then to principle number one, our first point today. God loves justice and so must we. God hates injustice and partiality in judgment. Now we see this in the first two verses of Psalm 82. Look there with me. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. And God says to them, how long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Now, some think that God here is addressing angelic beings, but this uh, divine council could be translated the congregation of God. It's more likely that the gods here refers to the rulers and the judges. This makes the best sense of the context, first of all. God is rebuking them for acting unjustly, verse 2. He calls them to give justice to the weak, the fatherless, the afflicted, the destitute, verse 3. And he calls them gods. Why? Because, Because they're high positions as representatives of his authority. And he warns them that despite that high position, they're going to die like all men, verse 7. And the prayer in verse 8 is for God to judge the earth where man lives. So the context here makes it clear that these are human rulers that God has in view. But moreover, this is how Jesus interprets it. In John 10, 34 and 35, Jesus cites Psalm 82, verse 6, in a debate that he's having with the Pharisees over him being the Son of God. Jesus says, Is it not written in your law, I said you are God's? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, that is to humans, do you say of him whom the father consecrated and sent into the world, you're blaspheming because I said that I'm the son of God? He's arguing from the lesser to the greater. His point is, is if human rulers in some sense can be called gods, then it's far more appropriate for Jesus to be called God because he truly is the son of God. 
Now, God hates injustice. He rebukes these rulers for judging unjustly and showing partiality to the wicked, verse 2. God sees all that is done by the governing authorities, and they are accountable to God who is sovereign over all. All those in authority need to remember this fact. Those in Congress, the president, governors, judges, mayors, police, they will all give account to God for how they rule, how they use their authority. Now, we have a Supreme Court in this land, but there is a court that is higher still. It's God's court in heaven. And this psalm reminds all those in authority of that fact. Now, he rebukes them, God rebukes them for their failure to uphold his justice. God is the one who defines what is right and wrong. God is the one who defines what is good and evil, just and unjust. They're ruling by their own will rather than the standards of justice established by God and revealed in his word. These rulers were unjust for a particular reason, because they're showing partiality to the wicked over and against the innocent. God says to them, how long will this go on? I like how Spurgeon puts it. He said, a little of this is too much. A short time is too long. The lament of the psalm is, how long will injustice be allowed to continue? Just as we lament over abortion. Just as we say, how long? How long? How long will innocent preborn children be killed unjustly? How long will we allow this to go on? And I know it seems like it'll never change, but I was thinking about it even this morning. I think it probably felt exactly like that for the Christians who were fighting against slavery in their own day. And yet slavery was abolished by God's mercy. And so there is hope in God that abortion will be too. The Bible says, he who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord, Proverbs 17, 15. God hates injustice, and so must we. God hates partiality, and so must we. He wants people to be treated equally under the law. And we see that principle here in this text, but many times in Scripture. So Deuteronomy 1.17, you shall not be partial in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. Deuteronomy 16.19, you shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality. You shall not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. Leviticus 19.15, you shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. We could go on and on with texts like this. God hates partiality. Partiality means judging somebody not based on their actions or their conduct, but judging someone's case based on some other factor. It could be favoring them because they're powerful or because they're beautiful or because they're rich. God wants equal protection under the law, including equal protection for the unborn. In Exodus chapter 21, 
verses 22 to 24, we read this. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined, and he shall pay as the judge is determined. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Now, this is the principle of lex talionis. It means that the punishment has to fit the crime. That's the point. But we need to, when we read this, ask the question, harm to whom? And the answer is either of them, either the mother or the baby. God doesn't differentiate. God considers, notice, God considers the unborn baby as a person with equal value and rights who deserve equal protection under the law. Just as this flyer from the Foundation to Abolish Abortion says, the same laws that protect these people should protect these people. They're people. And as people, they deserve equal protection under the law. And because God made man in his image, Genesis 1.27, human life has transcendent dignity, value, worth. It's intrinsic to who we are as people. Your worth is not based on what you look like, how big you are, how effective you are, how productive you are, how rich you are, or anything else. You have value and dignity and worth because you're made in God's image. Every single human being is made in God's image and possesses that value, that worth, that dignity as such. Incidentally, this is why life is sacred and it should be protected. Because we're made in God's image and because we have value, God's word teaches us we should protect life. So Genesis 9, 6 says, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed because God made man in his own image. God forbids murder, that is the unjustified taking of innocent human life, Exodus 20, 13. Innocent in the sense that they've done nothing deserving of death. He forbids murder. But as we just saw, God tells us that the child in the womb is a person and has the same value as those who are already born. What that means is to unjustly take a life at any stage of human development is murder. Now, Think of it this way. Now that you are born, that you are alive, is it acceptable for your mom to come and kill you? Can your mom come and kill you right now? No, of course not. That's absurd. The same exact thing should be true of the child in the womb. It should be true of you before you were born. Now, what the question is, when does God create each of us in his image? And the answer is, at fertilization or conception. In Psalm 139, verses 13 through 15, David says to God, you knit me together in my mother's womb. We're not just physically created, notice this, but we're personally created. He says to God, you knit me, I was made. We are persons from the beginning. God 
tells Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Jeremiah 1.5. Jeremiah was a person in the womb already known by God. In Luke 2.44, John the Baptist leaps for joy in his mother Elizabeth's womb. But joy is an emotional response of a human person. God uses the same terminology to talk about people both in the womb and out of the womb. He uses the same words to talk about them because they're people in both places. The only thing that changes is where they are. We could go on with this, but the clear testimony of God's word is that life and personhood begins at fertilization. And science agrees, when a sperm fertilizes the egg, at that moment, a genetically unique human being is formed with their own DNA. That person in the womb, it's not mom, it's not dad, it's a new person with their own DNA, all the DNA to direct their growth and development for her whole life. All they need is nutrients and oxygen and a safe place to grow and develop, the same things that all of us need for life. Each and every one of you started life just like this. That's how you started life. If you just go back and back and back and back, and you're wondering, like, was I alive yesterday? Yeah. Was I alive yesterday? Yeah. And you just keep going back, that's the day it all began. Human life begins at fertilization. That is when you came into existence. That is when God made you in his image. That's what God says. He says they deserve equal protection under the law. Sadly, many pro-life organizations disagree and are absolutely opposed to equal protection. I want to say, I said pro-life organizations are opposed to equal protection under the law. Equal protection would secure the right to life for all people. It would mean that there is no exception carved out allowing mothers to knowingly and willingly kill their baby in the womb. In other words, women would not automatically be treated as victims and protected from prosecution. In states where equal protection bills have been put forward, they have been defeated not by pro-choice people, but by pro-life groups. Why? Because many in the pro-life movement, that establishment, treats all women who've had an abortion as victims automatically. Now, that makes women out to be too weak or too ignorant to know better. But many women know exactly what they're doing. In our day, I believe most know, hence the guilt and the shame that follows. Now, in Louisiana, there was a law that made it through committee. It was in, uh, on its way to the House to be voted on, and pro-life groups stopped it. In fact, 77 pro-life groups sent an open letter. You can go online and read this. They sent an open letter to all state legislators across the nation. And they argue that no woman should ever be prosecuted for an abortion. No exceptions. 
even if they knew what they were doing. They're arguing that all women are victims without exception, victims of the abortion industry, of society, of pressure from other people. Now, are there some victims? Yes. Are all women victims? No. And the Shout Your Abortion movement makes that abundantly clear. Go and listen, read the comments of the women who have had abortions. They know exactly what they're doing. Not only do they know what they're doing, they're proud of what they're doing. The point is this. If it's wrong, if it's wrong to take the life of an unborn baby, then it's wrong for anyone to do it. Anyone. Equal protection laws don't single out the mother. They prevent anyone. They prohibit anyone from taking the life of an unborn. Everyone from murder. Equal protection laws don't demand a specific punishment. The point is, is they allow a case-by-case examination. They would look at each case in turn. They wouldn't apply to past abortions. It only applies going forward, and it would deter, prevent future abortions. This is going to be how we bring this to an end. If we continue to carve out an exception for women, we're contradicting our own stance. We're saying we don't really believe what we say we believe. We're not being consistent with our beliefs or our worldview. What if the woman is forced to do it? That happens. That's called duress. We have a defense for that. We don't punish people when they act under duress. So, for example, if someone puts a gun to your head and says, drive me to the bank because I'm going to rob it, the law doesn't see you as the getaway driver. You're not an accomplice because you acted under duress. There's a defense for that. Well, what if a woman really doesn't know what she's doing? What if... Truly, she doesn't know. There's a defense for that. It's called mistake of fact. We have laws in place already that handle these these questions. The point is this. To be just, our laws must apply equally to all people. But if we are automatically saying that all women are victims, what are we doing? We are prejudging the case. That's showing partiality, and it perverts justice. And the worst of all is that when we make all women into victims, this cuts them off from the gospel. Victims don't need to repent. Sinners do. If we tell someone that their sin is not their fault, we're telling them that they don't need to repent. What should we be telling them? Confess your sins. Admit what you've done. Then look to Christ. The only path to healing and forgiveness is by confessing sin and looking to Christ who paid the penalty for our sin, even the sin of murdering your own child. I like how Bradley Pierce said this. He said, God loves justice. Justice and righteousness are the foundation of his throne. It was because of God's justice that Christ went to the cross. 
pause there for a second. I think sometimes we forget about that. We focus so much on the fact that Christ went to the cross because he loves us, we lose sight of the fact that Jesus Christ went to the cross because God loves justice. Someone had to pay the penalty of our sin so that the justice of God could be satisfied. He says, the penalty of our sin needed to be paid so the justice might be satisfied. This is what I love. He says, when we treat our sin seriously, we treat Christ and the cross more gloriously. The point is, God gets so much glory for displaying his grace to us in Christ in paying the penalty for our sins. That's why I had us read Ephesians 2, because that's what Ephesians 2 is about. The gospel puts on display forever, now and forever, the immeasurable riches of God's grace and kindness to us. We don't get through this by ignoring the seriousness of our sin. We admit the seriousness of our sin and we bring it to the cross of Christ and we have forgiveness in Christ and it all magnifies the glory of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God to us in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is our only hope in life and death. There is hope in Christ. Jesus is the only way to be cleansed of your sin, to be free of condemnation, free of guilt, welcomed into heaven. If you confess your sin, God forgives you and he cleanses you from all unrighteousness. Not like just the little sins, all unrighteousness. And that goes for all of us. It's all the sins that we just hope and pray. Nobody ever sees, nobody ever figures out that we have inside of us. Christ pays it all, all of it. It's all for his glory. There's such hope in Christ. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Oh, those are precious words. You're forgiven and loved and treasured in God through Christ. Now, this isn't to minimize at all what happens in abortion or the pain or the guilt or the regret of abortion, but it is simply to declare what God has done through Jesus Christ to forgive you and to make you his own. Look to Christ in repentance and faith and be cleansed, forgiven of your sin. Now, but it's not just about justice. It's also about love. It is true. God sent his son because of love. And God commands us to show justice to the weak out of love. Love your neighbor as yourself is the fulfilling of the law. So this leads us to point two, the second principle. God loves people and so must we. Understand that God, the reason God demands justice and protection for the weak is because he loves them. And so must we. Look at verses three and four. After being rebuked for their failure, the rulers are commanded to do right. Essentially, stop doing evil and learn to do good. God demands justice and protection for the weak because he cares for them. You can't read the Bible without realizing that throughout the scriptures, cover to cover, we see that God has a special concern for the widow, the fatherless, the orphan, the poor, 
the weak, the needy, the vulnerable. These are the special objects of God's care. And they should be the special objects of our care as well as his people. Verse 3, give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the rights of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. This is what the rulers and the judges are supposed to do. This is what the people are calling for them to do through this psalm. There's a call for justice here. God demands the civil authorities to give justice. The judges must act and the congregation of God's people must call on rulers to judge justly and without partiality which is what this psalm is doing. Maintain the right of the afflicted, it says. What right? The context makes it clear it's the right to justice without partiality, the right to equal protection under the law. And yes, that includes the right to life. God demands this and he focuses on the weak, the fatherless, the afflicted, and the destitute because they're the most vulnerable. They're the ones who are most likely to be exploited The weak and the afflicted deserve equal hearing, equal protection under the law. Our 14th Amendment says this very thing. It's our highest governing authority, not the president. These documents. 14th Amendment says, No state shall deny to any person the equal protection of the laws. It's already there. We just need to do it. Now, It's clear in this text that it is cowardly to take advantage of the weak. It's so cowardly. I can't think of anyone more cowardly than an abortion doctor. But conversely, it is noble. It is honorable. It glorifies God to defend and care for the weak. The point is, we must love our unborn neighbor. A part of loving our unborn neighbor is doing everything we can to pass equal protection laws. Part of loving our unborn neighbor is seeking to rescue them from the hand of the wicked. That's what Landon and the team have been doing now for over a year. We've seen at least one baby that we know of saved. We've seen at least one woman's soul saved. Praise God. Praise God. That's just what we know. We, so much of what we do in ministry, we don't see all the fruit. But we trust God is at work. A part of loving our unborn neighbor and part of loving our neighbor in general is caring for the women and the men who are parents. They're already parents and they're considering abortion. We got to be ready to support mothers in both the immediate and the long term. Why? So that they can be encouraged and enabled to choose life. Love our neighbor. God loves people and so must we. And of course, the gospel has to be central in all of our efforts. That's the greatest love. We don't want to just see lives saved. We want to see souls saved. Amen? God loves people. He's got special concern for the weak And so must we. The third principle then is that God will judge and we must trust and obey him. 
There is a warning in this psalm. God will judge the unjust rulers for the devastation that they cause. The rulers are described further in verse 5. Look there with me. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. These leaders lack the moral compass that they need to rule justly. And when that kind of person is in power, the moral principles that God has established get destroyed. Such perversion of justice, showing partiality to the wicked, condemning the innocent, this unravels the very fabric of society. It undermines the foundation of law and order. Good is called evil. Evil is called good. And the impact of that spreads far and wide into many different issues. That's the consequence of it. And it's exactly what we're seeing in our day. It's like trying to build a mansion on a foundation of manure. It cannot bear the weight and we cannot bear the stench. This psalm is a reminder that the law is a tutor. It teaches. Now, the law cannot change a heart, but it does help teach people, teach society what is right and wrong. And it has a restraining influence against evil. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8-11. through 11. Equal protection laws would teach that the unborn are persons and that it's wrong to intentionally kill them at any time, discouraging women from abortion. Most of all, the law shows our need for Jesus Christ, Galatians 3.24. This is because nobody can keep the law. The law points out our sin. It points out the fact that we have all broken it. We are all under God's wrath for our sin. We are all guilty, and we all need a Savior. It's the sick who realize that they need a doctor. It's the sinner who realizes that they need a Savior. This is why we never leave the gospel behind in the fight for life. This psalm also teaches us that we should be thankful when we do have honorable and just rulers in authority over us. And we should pray that God would establish more just and honorable authorities. Now, God has honored these, uh, these, these rulers, these authorities, with the administration of his authority, his rule. They would not have any authority apart from God. They have no right to punish the guilty if God had not instituted them, Romans 13. What that means is, is that they bear the responsibility to be just and faithful, yet they failed, and so God warns them that they're going to face his judgment. Verses 6 and 7, I said you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. In other words, it doesn't matter how mighty they are. They will die and face the great judge, God himself. And the psalm ends with this corporate prayer for God's judgment. Verse 8, Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit the nations. This is a prayer for God to correct this grievous evil in the land. It's a prayer for God to remove the unjust rulers and establish good ones. And of course, the truth of this is not going to be ultimately realized until Christ returns on the last day. He is going to right all wrongs. We saw this already in, in Ephesians. One day, all people are going to bend the knee before Jesus Christ and confess that he is Lord. Be they princes or paupers, all who are unrighteous and rebellious will be judged. Now, in the meantime, 
we must share the gospel because it brings forgiveness so that people can escape condemnation and because it spreads the rule of Christ, the kingdom in the hearts of people. So the wicked don't have any knowledge, it says in verse 5. They're blind, they're destructive, they walk in darkness. What does that mean? It means they need the light of Christ. That's what they need from us. So we bring both truth and grace, law and gospel, as we fight for justice. Or any cause, in any cause, the law shows that there is a judgment for sin. The gospel shows that there is pardon for sin in Christ. I want to close with just looking at some ways to respond. How should we respond? First, prayer. That's verse 8. Pray for God to act, to judge, to establish justice in our land, to stop the wicked. Pray for rulers to rule in line with God's word so their rule is just. Pray for God to put rulers who are faithful and just into positions of governance. Pray on behalf of the afflicted. Pray for the mothers. Pray for the end of abortion. Pray. I don't know about you, but I find it easy to stop praying about this. Amen, somebody? Pray. Second, rescue. It's verses three and four. There are a lot of things that we can all do. We can all be involved in some way, but we're not necessarily going to do every single thing on this list. We're going to see in a couple weeks that God created us in Christ Jesus for good works that he prepared for each one of us. That means a few of you may be uniquely called to give yourselves to the pro-life cause. And I pray that some of you are. But what are some things that we can do to rescue? Again, pray. Second, give, especially those to those working for equal protection and for pregnancy centers who are caring for women. Third, educate people. The more people know, the more likely they are to oppose abortion and stand for life. So next week, in our Sunday school, in GFC Institute, we're going to talk about pro-life answers to pro-choice arguments to help equip you to do that. Nine o'clock if you want to come. Fourth, political action. Vote for candidates who are going to actually protect life. Work to pass laws of equal protection. Call on the governing authorities to uphold justice without partiality. That's what the psalm is doing. Five, volunteer at a pregnancy center. Six, do sidewalk counseling. This is what Landon and the team is doing, pleading with women right at the front lines as they go in, pleading for life, proclaiming the gospel, calling them to Jesus Christ. Seven, adoption and foster care. We need to care for these kids, being willing to, I guess, act on what we believe. Amen? And eighth, compassion, supporting moms in need to help them choose life. Finally, third, warning with hope. That's verses six through eight. Yes, there is a judgment coming for those who afflict the weak and the fatherless, yet there is also hope that God is going to judge all evil. He's going to right all wrongs. And for those who are in Christ, we have nothing to fear. There's forgiveness for all of our law-breaking in the grace of God, in Christ, in the gospel. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That, brothers and sisters, is our primary message and primary mission. 
The gospel is the key, transforming hearts and minds under the rule of Christ. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. This is going to be central to any change that we see in our nation. So we have to keep the gospel central. God says, give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Let's pray and act to that end with the hope that just like chattel slavery, we may see the abolition of abortion in our nation. Even in our day, may it be so. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you that you have established and revealed the standard of justice of right and wrong, of good and evil in your word. God, we thank you that we have knowledge and understanding through the Bible and in Christ. And we thank you that you, you put various authorities over us for our good and to restrain evil. We thank you for that. God, we pray that you would move in the hearts of our governing authorities to rule with justice. God, would you encourage and strengthen those Christians serving in places of authority to lead courageously and faithfully. God, we thank you that you're going to hold all rulers and judges of earth accountable. Would you enable us to speak and to stand up for equal justice for the weakest and the most vulnerable in our society? Would you help us to rescue them from the hand of the wicked? God, we thank you and praise you that there is hope in Jesus Christ for all of us as lawbreakers, we thank you that there is grace and forgiveness. Would you help us to bring both truth and grace into our society? We ask and pray, God, that you would bring justice for the unborn and that you would bring abortion to a complete end in our nation. God, we ask this and we pray it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. So let it be.